0: So I started high school at twelve, and college at sixteen. Uh, yeah, from that I went on to to, to do a postdoc in uh, Sweden at the Wallenberg Neuroscience Center at, at Lund University. With a, it's a, we also call it a, a vaccine against brain tumor recurrence. So uh, we're effectively we're developed we're training the immune system to attack and kill cancer.
1: All right. Welcome to another great episode of the Dre and Smiley podcast, The Inner Circle. We have an incredible guest with us today.
2: Awesome. We have uh, Dr. Dwayne Irvin, PhD, MPH. He is the CEO of Novaxis Global. Dwayne is also a a founder and a scientific officer. He has a lot of accolades. He hails from the University of California, Los Angeles. John Hopkins University. Dr. Dwayne, I'm sure you can talk about yourself more than I can, please. Is there anything in your bio that I missed? This is an impressive resume you have here.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I think you guys are doing a great show. It's good to be a part of it. Uh, Yeah, just more detail. I did Johns Hopkins undergrad, but I will give a plug for Loyola. I did Loyola High School, a Jesuit high school in New York City, great high school. Uh, After uh, Hopkins did my master's in public health, specializing in environmental health sciences at UCLA, and then did my PhD at the School of Medicine. It was in the pharmacology department, but my dissertation work focused on how brain stem cells build brain tissue, and uh, we published about six papers on that, and um, uh, yeah, from that I went on to to do a postdoc in uh, Sweden at the Wallenberg Neuroscience Center at, at Lund University with a really, really big name in Parkinson's uh, disease called uh, Dr. Anders Bjorklund. And uh, one of the most rewarding experiences I had with him. And then after that, I came back to the States, came back and took a position at Cedar sinai Medical Center, uh, Department of Neurosurgery. And um, I'd like to add there, um, at the time, uh, he, Chief guy there was uh, Dr. Keith Black, who was at UCLA beforehand and I had had a chance to attend some of his lectures when I was a med student and kind of like a lot of the work he was doing. And uh, he had moved over to Cedar Sinai, which was a teaching hospital for UCLA. And he's, a, he's an African American guy and uh, you know, a bit, about 10 years my senior, and I wanted to bring my science to uh, a clinician like himself who was already doing great research. And, and bring some of my skills and talents to that, to that table. And then I was there for almost 10 years, uh, assistant professor, research scientist, and while there, um, developed the technology that the company of Access Global uh, has right now. And it's, it's a immunotherapy against the most common adult brain tumor, leoblastoma. Uh, this is a very, very bad tumor and it has less than a 15 month median survival after diagnosis. And despite all the advances we've seen in chemo and radiation in the last 40, 50 years, those survival rates had not changed. Uh, so, you know, interesting chemo drugs that benefited lung patient, lung cancer patients or skin cancer patients just weren't as effective in benefiting brain cancer patients for a, primary, for a variety of reasons, but primarily the, the blood-brain barrier. And so um, we decided to well, he was the one who sort of started along this line for brain tumors. And uh, I developed sort of a, a, a third generation, if you will, where or, or we took the basic science that he developed and learned from some of the trials, made some tweaks to it, to what we have today. Uh, so it's, it's uh, we can also call it uh, a vaccine against brain tumor recurrence. So you can think of it like a vaccine against bacteria or viruses. This is a vaccine against cancer. And uh, we try to utilize the immune system to to go out and kill off the cancer. So um, that's really in a more detailed, with the timeline sort of breadth of the educational background that's led me to where I am today.
2: That's fascinating. Can you, um, you mentioned the brain tumors. And, And can you put it in perspective from a global perspective? Or is it a rare type of tumor? Or is it a pervasive tumor? I asked one of my friends um, recently, her older brother, who's only 61, just died from brain tumor. But is it, I'm sure there's different categories of brain tumors. But. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: for this most, for this really bad brain cancer, most of them are bad. But this one, like I said, it's a death sentence. You have roughly 15 month median survival after diagnosis. It's got an incident rate of about twenty eighteen 18 to 20,000 patients a year here in the U S that could be considered rare uh, to some cases, but a lot of people and the incident rate seems to be going up a bit. And also, you know, you have some big names. It doesn't discriminate. So individuals like Ted Kennedy and, um, and uh, the military guy, um, the governor, um, whose name I can't think of, right? McCain, John McCain. Right. And uh, Johnny Cochran or some others. So you've got, you know, it doesn't discriminate. And I think, you know, when it starts to touch people, we all know, um, then it looks, you know, it gets a bit of a a bit of a push, you know, maybe sometimes additional resources come in or at least more and more of the word gets out. And there's more of an effort to try and make a difference in this area.
1: Makes sense. Dr. Irvin, something that really uh, intrigues me, I get excited about is when I see successful people in whatever industry they're in. Um, take you, for example, you have your MD, PhD, Johns Hopkins, et cetera. So where does that come from? What, at what point did you have an interest in medicine? Was it that you, you're coming from a family of physicians? Where did this drive to achieve this type of success come from? That's a
0: great question. Um, I don't have an MD, by the way. That's the MPH. But... Um, the, the, but to answer the question, um, it it was a circuitous route, really. Um, I think uh, what I ended up effectively, it's just sort of a way of um, how I approach life in general. Um, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that had doctors, lawyers, or had accomplished anything to such a great level, if you will, education wise. Um, but I did have both parents, and uh, we grew up in Harlem. During the seventies and eighties, and uh, you know, my father had gone to a, a black college, Johnson C. Smith, and gotten his degree, and my mom had gotten an AA degree, but they both worked really hard, uh, and which was and it was tough in those days, uh, as it is all the time. But but I think the drive to to um, to pursue something that requires a lot of discipline and, and passion uh, just sort of came from life experiences and you know hearing constant messages from my parents or from some of the people the leaders today or or at least back in the 70s and 80s and so i think here's an interesting story is uh, i used to do really well in, in elementary school uh grade wise and then um i got double promoted twice uh so i started high school at 12 and college at 16 and there's a lot of us out there like that but um, you know it The reason why I say I'm not particularly smart, I just, my pops was like, uh, what's really behind it is that he worked two jobs all the time. And my mom had to raise three sons in Harlem, you know, and she worked full time. So he would always give extra homework and physical activities to do when we came home from school. So if I was in the second grade, you know, he'd go out and buy the second grade reading, writing, math. Remember those books back in the day? Oh yeah! And, oh yeah! You know, we'd have five pages here or five pages there. Push ups, sit ups. You know, and if you didn't get them done, you know, when he came home, you had to you had to answer for it. So uh, we didn't want to answer for it, so we got it done. And um, and so I think I would come in and do well in school because you know I had already seen the material. And then I, I had a situation in third grade where. I'll never forget it. My auntie, she um, came to visit right around the time when the report cards came out. She didn't have much coin. And when I she saw my grades, she was like, oh, and she gave me a couple of dollars. And then, you know, at that point, for some reason, I think I tested it and said mention to someone else, and they gave me a few, you know, 50 cents. And I was like, hey, people give me money if I do well in school, right? So that was one of the driving forces <laughs> when I was younger. To do well in school and i think once you you know i i I like routines uh you know i think from playing sports and 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 doing those assignments i just grew up sort of liking routines and then but always found myself interested in you know what the next thing would be that would grab my interest and so when i was a young guy i wanted to be an nfl player and I had mapped Ooh. out which Super Bowl I would play in based on, you know, when I, when I turned 24, I should be able to, you know. <laughs> and then uh, I went to uh, Catholic elementary school in Harlem mm-hmm. after going to public school. And I started that in fifth grade, sort of like middle school today. Uh, St. Aloysius, great school in Harlem, one of the eight Catholic schools that were in the Harlem, South Bronx area. And um, the. Uh, there was a brother Timothy there, and he was a brother in the in the church. He had like the brown robe, looked like a monk, and with the thing on. And he was okay. the disciplinarian of the school. And I didn't have a, uh. a particularly strong relationship with him, but he had an afro and a mustache, reminded me of my pops.
1: So yeah,
0: <laughs> you know. So then I was like, hey, I want to be a brother, you know. And I, I told him I was like, what do you have to do to be a brother? And he's like, you know what, you seen uh, like books and things. He was like, you. maybe you want to consider you know, Jesuit school and become a priest. And they're more of an academic background, yada, yada. So effectively, I started high school. I went to a Jesuit school, and I w- with the intent to become a Jesuit priest. Um, oh, wow. And wow. how did I get there from Harlem? There were some nuns that came into Harlem, um, at least one of them pretended they were then. That's another story for her to tell. Uh, They came into Harlem and they targeted kids who were starting sixth grade and they found, had extra resources and provided a summer education, if you will, to these students. There were eight that started by Beth Pettit program and then, uh, you know, there have been thousands that have graduated from that program now since. And it takes kids from, uh, I think, sixth grade on up through high school, I think they provide extra courses for them. And so I was a part of that and they were able to help us identify private schools, other Catholic schools outside of Harlem that us kids were didn't really know about or our parents didn't really know about. And so because of that uh, mm. program uh, from 6th, 7th, 8th grade, we were able to identify Loyola and, and, and send me there. So when I started high school, I wanted to be a Jesuit priest, but then I you know, puberty kicked in, and I realized that wasn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, then, <laughs> so we started looking at other things, and I had a buddy uh, was, I was close friends with. We took a math class, I think it was geometry, and he wanted to be an airplane pilot. And, you know, I love that kind of stuff. So me and my buddies used to play a, game, a board game called Air War, and it was really technical. Um, and so I wanted to be an airplane pilot, but didn't get my letter to the congressman and in time. So then I wanted to uh, be a fireman. Ultimately, uh, just knew I liked math. I mean, this is really how the whole thing came. And so I decided to you know, apply to colleges to be a chemical engineer. My parents didn't really know of any big schools other than my dad would take me to these pen Relays at UPenn. And so I was like, I want to go to UPenn. So my guidance counselor was like, what colleges do you want to go to? I said, UPenn. She said, why? So it's because my dad took me to the pen Relays and I really liked this campus. So she kind of helped me out a lot, uh, Sister Nora, beautiful woman, and helped me come up with a nice list of schools. And uh, I ended up applying, uh, you know, Hopkins and a few others and Dartmouth and all these schools. And I got into everyone but you, Penn. <laughs> 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 then I had to really think about it, right? So uh, yeah, I had to choose between Hopkins and Dartmouth and um, – they gave me scholarship monies, but still it was too much for what my parents could afford. And so my father was like, well, uh, you have to go to city college, you know, because we just can't afford to send you there. And my mom was like, well, hold on, let's write them both a letter and see if they'll give us more money. So we read, I'll never forget, we sat and wrote that letter and then uh, Hopkins gave more money. So I went there and uh, I started as a chemical engineering major by sophomore year Math was boring. The, the one science that I, subject that I really enjoyed up until that point. We took a class called differential equations or something, and I was like, "This is boring." So, and the funny thing is, my personality too, because I was younger, um, two years younger than everybody. You know, I always had to sort of work extra hard. You know, on on all the social levels and physical levels, and so my. But I was used to it by then. I didn't mention I played like three varsity sports in high school. It was soccer, basketball, and baseball. And then um, when I got to college, um, I was like, my roommate was a biomedical engineering major, which was a relatively new and one of the toughest majors at Hopkins. So I decided I wanted to switch to that major because it was the toughest And that was not a wise decision, (laughs) So, um, only because, you know, students were much further along than I was as far as discipline Uh and knowledge and the like. And so, but that resistance really helped me fine tune, you know, what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. So in short order, uh, I basically found myself in trouble by midterms, beginning of sophomore year, taking all those BME classes all at once Ooh. and then i went in the dean called me in or i went to the dean i think i went to her and i was like help me you know i don't you know everything is tough and uh by the way i was playing football I they I did football two years basketball two years and track two years it was almost mandatory to run oh, track yeah. if you did football but anyways uh okay. so she was really a dr aranau a, a chemist uh i think she's one of the beautiful women and so she um She sat me down and was like, listen, a lot of students, you know, they've been wanting to be doctors and and engineers for a long time and have been focused on it. You kind of went to a liberal arts Jesuit high school. And so your background in the sciences is probably not as strong as some of your colleagues. Why don't you choose one of our last remaining area majors where you can try, you know, some chemistry, biology, physics, you know, and figure out what Mm. you want to do. And that was probably the beginning where I really opened my mind up to uh, really trying to identify what it was I was passionate about as far as the sciences were were concerned. Once I took that biology, that Mm. molecular bio class I took for sure sparked my interest in science and medicine. So I took this natural Mm. science area major, bounced around, and my fresh senior year, I took an elective in public health. And uh, that's when things got started. So... I took this reproductive endocrinology class and decided I wanted to Mm. get a public health master's, uh, but then found myself interested in environmental pollutants and what effects they might have, teratogenic effects on like newborns or, you know, fetuses developing. I don't know. That's another story on that one. And so Mm. I got that major. When I got there, there were a lot of, some of the classes had a fair amount of technical science. Uh, being thrown at us, articles are related to how we identify uh, gene expression and/or protein expression, and this is all still at Johns Hopkins. No, no, right? I graduated from Hopkins. My bad. So I graduated from Hopkins. Okay. But my senior year at Hopkins, I took this public health class that got me interested in public health. Gotcha. So I ended up going to UCLA gotcha. School of Public Health, Environmental Health Sciences okay. Department. And they're focused in on air okay. pollutants. It was a Dr. Mustafa was my advisor, a really sharp guy. And um, we were looking at, you know, pollutants, common ones in the air, and then you know, grab filters in different places in the city and, and look at, you know, measure different compounds. Uh, but some of the research articles we read, I found really interesting, particularly as we were looking at gene expression. This would be uh, in the early '90s to mid '90s. And so in C2, hybridization was one of the new techniques that could help you identify, look at active genes by looking at mRNA expression. And so...
1: Um, and Dr. Urban, right. you realize some of these words are like foreign languages. Today. Oh, right. <laughs> some of these words are... <laughs> but, but, no, but keep going, though. No, keep going. I'm sure, I'm sure there are listeners in our audience who will you know, dive right into each each of these four words you're using.
0: <laughs> I, I thought I was bringing it down a little bit. Let me try again. So when you we – were, we were there are ways to look to see if a gene is turned on or turned off. And so,
1: gotcha. And if you want to gotcha. see if that gene plays Makes a sense. role
0: in development, how tissue is formed, or you can use these techniques gotcha. to look and see if genes are on or off. And so that was a relatively okay. new technique. And so – I found it. It was that kind of science, molecular-based science, that I was really interested in. And so, um, yeah, at that point, um, I had taken a, a, a. There was a class being offered. Um, did you guys just ask me one question? I'm running away here. There was a class.
1: <laughs> no, no, you're, you're good. You're good. I, 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 I have a follow-up, but I want you. I want you to tell me about this class, and then I have a follow-up question. For I was going to say
0: was there was a class someone. Put, One of the the biotech companies that was selling these kits posted on the wall, you know, for $200, you can take PCR, these three classes that were relatively new techniques to look at how genes function on off kind of thing. And I wanted to learn that. So I didn't have 200 bucks. So I called them up and I said, hey, I really want to take this class, but I don't have 200 bucks. I'm a student. And they were like, well... I don't know what i said but the guy should tell you what if you walk around campus and hand out flyers and put them up on the walls right we'll give you a discount so i met with this guy uh he gave me like 100 flyers i put them all up around campus and i guess he followed me the next day and they offered me the class for free and so it was there wow. that class changed everything wow. because there i met my will yeah. soon be my dissertation advisor Dr. Harley Kornblum, who was a new pediatric neurologist at UCLA, taking the class as well to fine-tune what was going on in these areas. And um, I told my story to him, and he allowed me to volunteer in his lab.
1: You you eventually went on to pursue your PhD
0: at... At UCLA School of Medicine Pharmacology, the Molecular Medical Pharmacology Department. So there... uh, yeah, Harley was a pediatric neurologist who really focused on children with severe epilepsy. Mm. And at the time, this would be mid nineties to late uh, mid nineties to late nineties. I remember there was an episode Mm. on 60 minutes about severe children with severe epilepsy and how they were taking out part of the brain. You know, epilepsy is a result from like miswiring and brain tissue that would cause these sort of electrical changes that aren't normal, and kids would have seizures as a result of it. And so one of the things, these were life-threatening, for some of these children, they were life-threatening seizures. And so the best, the drugs weren't working for them. So someone came up with the eye, let's just remove part of the brain tissue where it's disorganized with electrical activity, and we can remove the suture. I mean, remove the seizure and save the child's life, prevent them from having life-threatening seizures and at the time the dogma was there was no once the brain was damaged there was no ability to repair it so if you took out part of the yeah. certain region of the right side of your brain a small piece that maybe controlled your arm you would lose that function and never get mm-hmm. it back um and but it looked when we did this to these children they were gaining function back over time and this hmm. opened up a whole new area. We call it brain plasticity. Like, How does brain tissue? Yeah. And so we needed, we needed to figure out what was going on. And so we were looking at different factors, growth factors, that might be responsible for this recovery. And then that led me into the genetics of uh, how brain tissue functions. The first question was, well, how do you build a normal brain, right? And then from there... How does it work under repair? Or how does it become diseased?
1: That, that all makes sense. What stands out to me, Dr. Irvin, is a number of things is your drive and passion uh, is directly related to your discipline, which you learned early because of the, the structure that you grew up in, right? And that seems to have really played a huge part in you achieving the success you've reached to date. But here's one question. There's a book that came out uh, about f- oh wow maybe six seven years ago by Doctor Damon Tweedy, uh, Black man in a white coat. Are you familiar with that? No, but I wanted. Yeah, so so this is, this is a story about a physician who achieved success in, in becoming you know a, a physician, and he's also a uh, I believe he's a psychologist as well. He's actually wanted to be on the on the podcast, and what the book is about is essentially it's a biography of his journey pursuing his medical degree at Duke University. And one thing that's similar with the two of you is that drive, that ambition, that passion, um, just in general. And my question for you is, as it relates to Dr. Damon Tweedy, he had a a lot of obstacles he had to overcome. He's a black man, um, went to Duke, um, he had to work hard, you know, like all of us do, uh, pursuing you know your dreams. What sort of obstacles, <laughs> if any, did you face in pursuing your journey to achieve your your, your goals here, and, and and how did you overcome them?
0: Well, one of the first great question for one of the first obstacles was uh, being much younger than everybody else. Let me tell you that much. That was a real challenge um, socially. You know, your peer, you know, high school years, college. Young adult life, Um, and that was tough. And to be honest with you, it only got better once age, you know, once I started to age and get into that age range where the differences were, you know, two years difference, three years difference wasn't really being measured anymore. And that was after college, if you will. Um, And that just a lot of mistakes were made because of my lack of maturity, if you will, uh, when I'm in situations with older teenagers and young adults. Um, and I just timed out of that effectively. Um, another hurdle, you know, I think, and many of us can relate to this, those of us who find ourselves being the only one, right? And so that was a huge hurdle. So I think most of the hurdles came on the social and emotional side, um, before I could really get that discipline, practical effect to be, you know, whatever, however we measure success. So I think um, that was challenging. And, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, it, it was different. So it, name calling was very common. You know, I went to a high school where the Italian kids and the Greek kids and the Irish kids were kind of, you know, going against each other. And then there would be like one little black guy. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'd catch heat. Uh, and, you mm-hmm. know, if we went to certain places, the, the usual stories, you know, I would get isolated out or yeah. So that kind of yeah. stuff, you just get used to it and you become almost blind to it, especially like, you know, I remember in Hopkins, somebody was like re- looking some players, I think they were football or some kind of players, the cross, that's what it was, were sitting behind me in a calculus mm-hmm. final. And they were apparently they were looking on my paper. I had no idea. Uh, the instructor gave me an F and I was like scheduled to get an A. And I was like, what happened here? So of my finals before I went home, and he was like, You were yeah. cheating, or t- t- students were cheating. And I was, like, I was cheating, what are you talking about? And he was like, There were people behind you looking on your test, and I was like, I didn't know this, you're just now telling you this, right? What does that have to do with me, right? Or you were with them. I was like, I have no idea who these people are, what in the hell you're talking about. And so, I, I went to right. the dean,
1: you should have said, You should have said, Just look at me and look at them. You think we're together. <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So I explained my situation to the dean and he corrected it, but he had a problem. And when, when we all sat down, it was clear, you know, he had an idea about who should and who should not be in his classroom. And, um, you know, he wasn't bashful to let you know that. But he had some comments to say mm. about my background and whether or not I should have been there in the first place. And that was all the dean. Thank mm. God the dean was of a different cloth. And uh, that was I was able to be corrected i would say the funny part is is that when you as you guys probably well know you go through it for so long early years to a large degree you become you almost forced to become blinded to it right or have a tolerance level beyond what's normal and uh you know i see that today and so um and sometimes people will nudge me and go hey how'd you feel about that you know i'm like oh yeah you know (laughs) kind of not so good but you know i got this over here to deal with right that's his problem (laughs) You know, uh, one way or another, I have kids, too, and to hear them going through it, it's hard. It's tough. But, um, you know, that's how the society is. It's better today than it was. And you just have to persevere. And, I, you know, if there's anything I can say to those going through it, whether they're 10 or 50, you just got to persevere through it. And, uh, you know, speak out when you can, you know, and, uh, and pray.
2: Well, Dr. Irvin, when you mentioned you were promoted, double promoted, so that that means you were skipped two grades, if you met another parent who has a similar opportunity, would you recommend to skip two grades or skip one grade or leave the kid in the class so they can mature emotionally and socially with their age group? Because the way you described it, I mean, it it seems to work out for you, but it seemed like that might have been a challenge. What would you say to someone? who is conf- a parent who says, my kid is a child genius. Should I take him from sixth grade to ninth grade? What would you say Great question,
0: that? great question. Uh, I would yeah. say it's really up to, if you're gonna promote someone based on academic performance, I think some sort of a, an interview or a psych exam should be provided just to see if is the kid ready to take on these, to interact with these older kids. Uh, and, and have a positive response from it. Uh, so I, I, it would be based on the parents, the child, and I would think some sort of a, an assessment on maturation, you know, maturity level. Um, but I wouldn't blanketly say no, and I wouldn't, you know, Willie, really, if you will, say yes. Because, you know, I think, uh, and, and to some degree, you just don't know, right? So you might do fine in middle school or high school and then have a problem in college. So it's really up to, but if you find yourself in that situation, um, reach out, you know, to counselors and, and and your family and the like to get that support that's very much needed. We had a student, twelve year old, twelve years old, mm-hmm. uh, from India, a really smart kid. Um, he was protected in a lot of ways, but he was able to manage.
2: So I want to come back to the brain for a moment, and um, you know, it's football season everyone talks about CTE versus is, is CTE a tumor? Is it a cancer or can you just shine a little light on CTE versus a tumor? We, we, that So, you know, I won't speak
0: specifically on CTE cause I don't know the numbers, mm-hmm. um, but I will talk about brain tissue damage from impact. Okay. And that's a real situation uh, in general the idea, and CTE falls under this hood, I believe. Uh, When you have trauma to the brain, just like a muscle, uh, you can get an inflammatory response thereafter. So you punch someone in the arm, right, and it can swell up and be sore. Your brain, well, I mean, I have pain receptors, you know, it definitely has an inflammatory response. And constant responses to trauma over time, we've now discovered Uh, based on autopsy tissue and other studies, that uh, it can lead to degeneration on a vascular and or tissue level. Um, And that degeneration plus age can really cause some damaging effects. So I think we tried to build better helmets and change the way the sport is played. Having played football for two years, um, I know the impact that those hits can have um, and they can be damaging. I remember... And this is a symptom of a concussion. We used to do stingers with each other in a locker, right? We'd be like, before the game, smack each other's helmets, right? (laughs) until I got a ring. It was like, now I know I'm ready, right? (laughs) 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 Like every game... Practice, we're like bang, you know, let's go. Right. So, right. so, you know, now we know, um, probably not a good idea, but. right?
2: Why do I feel like so white-headed? <laughs> out the, run out of the locker room, busy, like. And then you know, for some of us, that was kind of a
0: a good feeling. You know, it was like you want to the mentality of a, if you're passionate about it, right? You're on the field for a reason. You must, when you play football, you like to hit or be hit, right? It's just, otherwise you're not going to be at the top of the food chain. So, you know, it's, it's a, the mentality is like, I'm going to overcome and persevere, right? You'll see players out there with broken hand. Well, back in the day, you can have, you know, wrap up the arm or the hand, you know, send me out there. And so, you know, like, even today you'll have players be like woozy and will still, no, put me in coach. I'm okay. You know? <laughs> Uh, so, right, right, it the the sport breeds a certain type of individual uh, or character um, that would, you know, have them maybe, you know, not weigh some of these things as as carefully as they should. You know, living in the moment, not really thinking about now. I'm forty five, fifty five, and now I have significant, you know, brain damage coupled with the aging process. And you know, you see, Junior Seau and some other players. You know, that may have had, you know, emotional challenges because the brain does it all, right? So it's not just physical. And um, it needs to be looked at more carefully. And I think the league is doing a lot for that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we're a bit medical field as well, working on concussion devices and the like, devices to prevent concussions and also to help promote repair after a concussion. So we had to be aware about it. Yeah. Great question.
2: Last, uh, well, not. one, but it's yeah. fascinating, the brain. And, and from your studies and your analysis of the brain, would you say someone's demeanor or characteristics is more genetics or more environmental when you study the brain?
0: The infamous <laughs> extrinsic versus intrinsic factors. Um, yeah. it's, got, it's definitely both, right? Oh. So I think, you know, a person's behavior is definitely influenced by, you know, what they learned, and that's environment. Uh, but, and you know, the environment will make effects down to a cellular and a molecular level, depending on how you're looking at it. And that person is already coded to have a certain kind of character and personality to some, uh, so yeah, it's definitely a combination of both. I think one thing to add to that, you know, so that's an obvious answer to some degree, but, you know, so how could we push it a little bit? So... You know, certain mutations, right, can certain changes in your genetics that aren't so good, uh, certain mutations can are direct, those genes may be directly related to how you respond when you get angry or when you get sad, right? And I think those extreme cases, uh, genetic, pro- genetic, probably prevail over the extrinsic factors, uh, or they become secondary because you're already sort of abnormal. If you will, if there's such thing called, it, it's really abnormal.
1: Okay, makes sense. So let's circle back to where we started, which is what you're doing now. Tell us more about what you're involved with today. Great. So
0: no, yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, Novaxis Global. It's a publicly traded OTC QB Markets company. Um, its asset is uh, an immunotherapy uh, to treat glioblastoma, the most common adult brain tumor. Uh, we effectively, we're developed, We're training the immune system to attack and kill cancer uh, in a very similar way as we would have it uh, attack a virus and or a bacteria. Um, it's very good at doing that, and uh, so that's why we want to try to utilize that system. Um, this particular technology uh, was developed out of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, Department of Neurosurgery, sort of led by Dr. Keith Black and some others, Dr. Zhang Yu and Dr. Wheeler's and Ubimovas and and all these other doctors uh, that work in that department. The company, uh, it's a pre-IND stage. Uh, The technology is pre-IND stage. What that means is we've uh, gone to the FDA uh, and asked them, are we done with everything? We believe we're done with all the animal testing and testing of cells in a dish, and we would like to start human clinical trials. And then the FDA came back to us and said, you are done with all the preclinical analysis. uh, And here's what you need to file an application to start human clinical trials. And so we've been on that now. They provided a a roadmap, if you will, for us. And we are trying to follow that roadmap of experiments to complete or data to show that we can have a successful application and we plan to file that next year. After presumed approval by the FDA, then we would be starting human clinical trial uh, to test and see if this is a safe and efficacious approach uh, to trying to, to, to treat these patients and give them something longer than 15 months, the tech a median survival. Uh, this technology that I've developed is a, a tweak, if you will, of what the chairman has developed. And we, I started this back in two thousand seven, and uh, the technology is in a public company right now. So Novaxis Global, uh, a biotech company that has a pre-IND uh, stage technology using immunotherapy to treat the most common adult brain tumor, and our trading symbol is X. As in X ray, S is in Sam, N is in Nancy, X. I say X is an X. And we're an OTC market company. Our business plan is to grow by acquisition and then organically thereafter. And so we're looking at other acts to bring into the company uh, with a focus on glioblastoma. We want to also improve the quality of patients' lives uh, that undergo treatment and or therapy. Uh, and so there are other ancillary ways to do that. Uh, be, Better diagnostic tools, better medical devices to improve surgery, improve surgical outcomes, um, and the like. And so uh, we, what well, we are very laser beam focused in on this first asset. And uh, when the time is right, we'll start to bring in assets.
1: Yeah. So if I wanted to invest in, in this, is it is it at a point where I can invest as an individual?
0: Absolutely. Uh, go to your broker and go on whatever app you're using. Uh, and then um, E-Trade or some others and type in those symbols and invest in us like you would an Amazon or a Pfizer.
1: Right. And give me that symbol again. Yes.
0: X S N X. X is in X-ray X is in Sam N is in Nikki. X is in X-ray X is X and X yeah. <laughs> Perfect, perfect,
1: perfect, OTC
0: markets would like to up this to a major exchange like NASDAQ in the next year.
1: And So another question, and I'll kick it back over to Smiley here. If you weren't doing this, if you weren't involved in this, because it's clearly consuming, all-consuming, what, what else would you be doing? <laughs> That's a great question.
0: I um, can talk about one other thing at a time, but playing guitar. I mean, I, I wanted to be a guitarist as well, and I did play in a band for a couple of years. Um, Jimi Hendrix is like a major idol by, you know, another groundbreaker, and, and, uh, so I just, I love music and, uh, my kids that, you know, made sure they could take lessons and the like. I just had my ear like most of us out here and, um, I love it. So I press and to take stress off. Um, I like to write, um, I like being in a band, that whole team thing, uh, I also like to DJ, you know. I DJed uh, house music back in the 80s when I was in college as a means to raise money to pay for food. Um, so yeah, I would probably try my hand at being a musician, professional musician.
1: Okay, okay. That's something you and I have in common. Is uh, I used to DJ also. I still have my, my vinyl, my Yes. Yeah and all that it's yeah. uh yeah it's it's i love it man it's, 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 it's a great expression to be able to um you're almost like a curator right where you get a group of people together and you have to kind of read the room figure out what they want to hear every now and then drop something in there that might surprise them but still you know have them enjoy it djs there's nothing like it one, one more question i can kick it over, over Smiley. so you you like music, yes you enjoy playing music etc if you could choose a theme song for your life, a theme song for your life, <laughs> what would that song be? In any genre, any genre. Wow, well, you know the first.
0: At first, I was like, "Oh
1: my god, how am I gonna?"
0: And then there is a song uh, inspired a Rolling Stone, and it's a okay. jazz sort of rock blues type. Oh, can you hear
1: me. Okay. <laughs> can you hear can me you hear now? Me knocking. Can not be oh yeah, 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 perfect! I like it. <laughs> the great guitar work. Yeah, that, yeah.
0: But also the lyrics. You know, uh that's me, man. You know, I'm coming, and uh, we're trying. Yeah, know, we I like Provide it. a novel therapy. You know, provide another tool for these cancer patients. You know, all these people putting all this work to help the you know the Harlem kid get to where he's at today. It's been a team effort for sure. By way of giving back, you know. Um you know, I have this opportunity to be doing science now for you know fifteen plus years, and uh, in in the lab and the like. And uh, I don't have a lot of years left, so I'm trying to get it done. And these patients, you know, I was really working on part- until I got to this department, well known for treating brain, cancer. and all the patients at the board meeting were bored me dying, and I just felt like you know, I did not put any of my effort into trying to help these patients out and was fortunate enough to invest and uh, combine technologies and, and now have this opportunity through Novak Global to try and bring this technology to patients as, as quickly as we possibly can. And it's, it's, it's not another chemo drug, it's not another radiation approach. You know, this is a novel approach, it's immunotherapy. You know, it's been used now for prostate cancer. Uh, it's been in market for prostate cancer for some time. Company called Dendrion and a drug is Provenge you've probably seen it on the on the TV and not realize what it was and there's more and more coming out uh, and so uh, it's just a great honor to be here trying to make a difference in that space.
2: That's amazing uh, Dr. Irvin and, and thanks for sharing with our listeners the the mm-hmm. whole process, but we're going we're to move into the final four. And that's where we asked all of our participants some final four questions. But before we get there, is there anything that we didn't ask you that we should have asked or anything you want to talk about that we didn't talk about? Or uh, you have a fascinating journey here with all this different success and promotions and, and you wanted to be a football player, wanted to be a guitarist, uh, wanted to be a basketball player. So this is just amazing. But anything that we didn't ask you that we should have asked you? Uh,
0: you know, you guys did a great job. You know, I can also say I'm going to plug my fraternity here, Omega Sci-Fi, a little bit, uh, because, you know, I think organizations like these, these fraternities can be really helpful for young African Americans, everyone, really. Uh, it's an opportunity to glom on with some others with similar thought and, um, you know, try to work together to just improve your condition, improve others' conditions as well. Um, I, I just want to keep adding that I get here alone, you know, I don't really see this as my doing. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a religious guy, I'm a believer in God and Christ, uh, but, you know, I respect all religions, faith, spiritual, however you want to define it. Um, you know, I feel like I'm a vehicle here, you know, other nature even, right? So uh, just trying to make a difference, that's the kind of person I am, you know, I want to make a difference for others. And um, music allows us to do that, as you were saying, Andre, connect with people. I love to connect. You know, and I think that that's, I think too often uh, people think that the individual did it all, but it's really the community of individuals that helped that one person get to where they were. And we continue to work together, you know, with whomever uh, to try and move this whole thing forward. So I'll just put that in there.
2: Well, thank you. We appreciate that. So final four is... Um... If you had the ability to have dinner with anyone alive or dead, who would you want to have at the other three ta- uh, chairs at your table and why?
0: Sure. Great question. Um, well, just because, you know, this all starts with the big guy above for me. So I want to sit down with, with Christ. <laughs> I'd like to have Jesus Christ at the table. Uh, and he could say, start with the prayer as well. know. Before we ate, uh, I'm really into <laughs> minds that push the envelope and try to go into spaces that are unknown. Uh, Jimi Hendrix is a major idol of mine. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Changed the way we we look at and, and play guitar. You know, game changer. Uh, had a very you know really rough background growing up, right? I'm Ooh. sure he'd have some I- interesting stories to tell creative ways of expressing himself, even in the entertainment, I wouldn't even think of. Uh, And um, I have to go with, you know, the big guy, Albert Einstein. I'd like, you know, (laughs) with with physics and, you know, obviously some of the things that were developed based on his technology or his ideas. Um, Yeah, those would be the three.
2: So it would be Jesus, Jimmy and Albert. All right. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, know what?
0: you know what they would all have longer hair they would all have outrooms all three of them right right, <laughs> right. all three
1: okay uh, professionally or personally what's been your greatest success
0: oh well
1: my, well you know it's almost
0: everyone's if you have children you know uh, you know I, I know it sounds simple but that it's the first thing that hops out at me you know it's uh having kids but you know they're 18 and 22 living their lives you know going for it and successful in their own ways so um you know just blessed to um you know have met someone that would give me children and and try to raise them as you know as a mother and father environment to make you know to bring some good people into this world not that i know what's good or bad but just some folks that are conscious, you know, about the community and others around them. So I would say my children, definitely uh, the most, maybe it's not answering the question, but uh, it definitely brings the most joy.
2: No, it, it, all answers are valid. And uh, here's one for you. Um, what would you say is your superpower?
0: <laughs> That's a great one. So... Um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a power that I think I will be expressing, even when I transition on. Um, it, it's an ability, you know, at first, you know, the whole, uh, you know, Jedi thing with the, with the, uh, you know, influencing people, and but it's really um, an ability to, connect. that's the, the, the strongest, um, at least the thing I try to on the boat is uh making a connection
1: so your ability to connect with people is, is your greatest superpower i like that I like that it's important it's valuable it's
0: connecting thoughts ideas music notes sound mm. science right connecting uh, molecules you know the right drug for the right condition right? um it's yeah. it's connecting uh, there's i think you know think of like artificial intelligence um you know, we're asking computers to process data and predict. And I think to do that, you have to connect one dot to the another. And I think that's really where um, I try to fit. And I think that that's what I focus the most on. Superpower.
1: Okay. The last one. So we have this uh, innate ability to make people uh, break the Internet with these, these interviews they do with us. So our prediction is that... Some publishing houses are going to call you after this goes live, and they're going to want to do a. I want you to write a biography, an autobiography. What would the title of that autobiography be? Yeah. <laughs> um.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, I think you stopped the per, doctor.
0: Persevere <laughs> would the top <laughs> word in that one. Persevere. Uh, yeah. Um, maybe love is the answer. Um, you know, my daughter got me a, a, a painting, got Einstein, right, holding a sign that says love is the answer. Right. And we always think of him as far as coming up with the answer mathematically or something else like this. And at the end of the day, man, uh, we're, we're, you know, all about love. So
2: I love Love is the answer. Oh man! Well, we have we have really appreciate you, Doctor Irvin, for uh, for eight your time and two your your wisdom and knowledge and three your candor. Uh, we we like we said as uh, Andre introduced the Dray and Smiley the Inner Circle podcast is about ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and you're definitely doing amazing things. And keep up the good work. We really appreciate you.
1: Dr. Irvin, it's been pretty awesome to speak to such a well rounded scientist like yourself.
0: I just said, I thought you guys were doing a great job with these podcasts. I'd love to be on here again and um, just keep up the great work. And I really love the show. Take care now.